Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Meredith Bagby, author of the new book, The New Guys, the historic class of astronauts that broke barriers and changed the face of space travel. Uh, Meredith, welcome to Bookstack. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on the book. So who were The New Guys? The new guys were the first class of American astronauts uh, that included women and people of color. They came into the program in 1978. And in addition, they were the first class of shuttle astronauts. And many of them stayed with the program until its end in 2011. Yeah, they're they're the new guys, TNG, the acronym. Uh, That's the politer form. Unofficially, they were TFNG. We'll let listeners work out for themselves what the F in there stands for. But well, was that friendly banter or was it something that spoke to something darker? I think it was a little bit of both. The effing new guys is a military term that is given to the newest runt uh, in the group. And these guys, you know, in addition to being the first women and people of color, many of them were civilians for the first time. Prior to 78, most astronauts were white military men who were test pilots, adrenaline-fueled, you know, rocket jockeys. And they had a very macho attitude, which is described by Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff. And I think when they saw the new folks rolling in, the women and the people of color and the people who had been civilians, people who, for instance, had maybe protested the Vietnam War, where a lot of the old guys had been in the Vietnam War, I think there was some resentment. And it took a while to get over that resentment and create a class that was well bonded and was able to work together. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff. And we do see some of the same figures from that famous book emerging here and not always covered in glory. You use the example of Chuck Yeager, the first person to break the sound barrier. He was not happy about Washington cramming. And again, here listeners can insert the racial slur for themselves down our throats was a a quote that you have from him. So, you know, these were difficult times for these newcomers from people who were literally heroes. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, prior to 1978, there were many women and um, many African-Americans who tried to get into the program. And I think of the Mercury 13, Jerry Cobb, who was a fantastic pilot, who tried to get into the astronaut program and was denied up to the level of Congress. And uh, I think of Ed Dwight, who was an African-American pilot who trained for the program but was denied entry. And these were all precursors to the new guys. So but by the time the new guys got there in 78, a lot of the hurdles had been eased for them. And at that point, NASA was actually actively recruiting um, people of color and women And they were doing so because Congress told them to do so. And they were forced to integrate because of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and because they had not complied. (laughs) And so Congress was now forcing NASA to comply and to actively recruit people into the space shuttle program that looked more like America. Yeah, that impetus is a really striking element of the book. Um, I mean, when, when we go back to Jaeger, his retort was always that the first minority candidates weren't up to the job. But there were these other outliers in the 1960s who were testing in secret or privately to prove that that women or minorities were up to the job. And as you say, that led to things like the Mercury 13, these uh, 13 women astronauts who were demonstrably up to the job. That's right. And a lot of this hard work had been done prior to the new guy's arrival. 
So then when the new guys got there, NASA, you know, there, not to say that there weren't hurdles for them. There were, but it was a much more welcoming place than it had been previously. Yeah, and I, I guess that it is part of this evolution. In fact, that's one of the stories that you tell in the book that NASA astronauts originally had been drawn exclusively from white male military pilots. Then the rules are relaxed so that they include civilian pilots. And then finally, women and minorities join as well. So there's a, an evolution to this project as it develops over the decades. Yes, that's absolutely right. And um, that's, I think, what Fred Gregory, who was of the class, put it best when he said, you know, sometimes it's a revolution, sometimes it's an evolution. But luckily, the agency got there. Even the numbers are quite striking from the book. You say at the end that parity remains a goal rather than a reality. And you give the numbers that the majority of the 355 space shuttle astronauts are white men, but there are 49 women, 14 African-Americans, six Asian-Americans, nine Hispanic-Americans. So I suppose that, that those figures really make that point, don't they, about it, you know, being an evolution, but also that a lot of this is just aspiration and they don't quite get there in terms of what they're really trying to do. I think um, you're right. I think the shuttle program, uh, though, was unusual in the sense that because the shuttle was the shuttle and it was the largest space vehicle America's ever created, it was able to take up to seven or eight people at a time. And that kind of capacity allowed lots of different kinds of people to go for the first time whether that's women or people of color or honestly foreign nationals, we took up. We took up people from corporations that released their satellites. We took up senators. We tried to take up a teacher. So there was this opening of space to the common man, so to speak, that is now kind of in full bloom with the arrival of commercial uh, space flight. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the teacher and, of course, Krista McAuliffe, uh, famously the teacher who died in the Challenger tragedy in 1986. But in some ways, there's a connection that you have uh, with her because your own elementary school teacher in Florida was someone who applied for that teacher position uh, and who in many ways inspired your interest and love in NASA and space travel. That's exactly right. Yeah, I grew up in, in South Florida and uh, not that far from the Cape. And my uh, elementary school teacher applied for the teacher in space program. So we spent that year, 1985 and 1986, really um, learning about NASA and learning about the shuttle. And of course, when it launched, when Challenger launched with the teacher on board, we were all out on the field like many millions of other kids um, and elementary school kids watching. And we saw it blow up you know, live and in the sky in front of us. And so it really left an impression. And I always wondered who else ha had died on that mission and what were the, the causes of it. And when I got to tell this story, I felt very fortunate to finally understand some of the components of that disaster. Yeah, and I think it's no exaggeration to say that that tragedy was probably the moment that your real interest at a kind of very profound level, both moving but also intellectual, uh, was probably born. Exactly. I, I think one of the things that is very striking about the book is the way in which these new guys really change the face of the astronaut. And, you know, the astronaut is a quintessential American hero, whether it's from Buzz Aldrin to Buzz Lightyear, that this is kind of something through culture and politics and society which has such an impact. What, what do you think was the, the real impact of these new guys in what it means to be an American and to be an American astronaut? I think that's a great question. Aside from the cowboy, I can't think of a, 
American prototype, a hero that um, resonates like astronaut does. And I think representation is so important in terms of the aspirations of younger people. I think that young women and um, young people of color saw these people, whether it was, you know, Sally Ride or Guy Bluford, uh, Ron McNair, and they felt like they could do it too. And that's such an important thing in terms of opening these kinds of jobs to a broader group of Americans and encouraging girls and boys to go into STEM and to prepare themselves for a life that you know, of science and exploration. Yeah, as you said uh, earlier, it's, it's a broader group of people applying for this, scientists and teachers, as well as the pilots. Uh, tell us about the kinds of people who applied, the kind of numbers who applied, and, and how they actually winnowed those down to the eventual shortlists. You know, at the beginning, actually, NASA had a hard time attracting a larger group of people because they had none of it before. And even though they went around to universities and, you know, gave speeches and did a lot of outreach, they didn't really get a lot of applications until they brought Nichelle Nichols on board, who, of course, played uh, Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek. <laughs> and she was a real inspiration to a lot of people because she was a woman of color and she was a scientist and she was on television and she had that celebrity. And she used that celebrity in order to help NASA recruit. After she came on board, uh, NASA received over 8,000 applications for the program. And over a very long process, the selection committee, which included uh, George Abbey, who was the flight director at the time, winnowed it down to a group of hundreds. And then those hundreds came in, came to JSC in groups of uh, about 25 or 30 at a time. And those groups were then put through rigorous tests at JSC, whether that included, uh, you know, class one or class two physical, depending on if you're trying out to be a pilot or a mission specialist, which is what the civilians were. Psychological exams, you had to get tested in a lot of different ways. And so after this process, which went over long over the summer, they, they then brought it down to a group of 35, which at the time was the largest class NASA had ever brought on. Yeah, and you do have some great descriptions of physical selection process candidates crawling into the claustrophobic space bowl. I have to say it brought me out in a cold sweat just thinking about it. There were definitely some hilarious moments in there. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because a lot of the women at the time, you know, told me that they hadn't made exercise a priority and it wasn't something that a lot of women did. And so there were very few of the women that could do some of the testing that they had required like chin-ups and push-ups. And so they, they definitely like forced themselves to, um, to prepare for it. And it was a very rigorous test. I think the psychological test also, there was a bad guy and a good guy who would interview you and the bad guy would try to throw you off. They would turn the temperature up in the room and they wanted to see how you handled stress. And so everybody who passed felt very, very well qualified, but also mentally prepared to spend time in small spaces um, that they were team players and they were even-handed folks. Yeah, and as you say, a lot of these characters were teachers and scientists. They had to get into exactly the same physical shape as the likes in an earlier generation of Armstrong, Collins and the rest of them, that the physical challenges that they faced, even though they were civilians, were just as intense. Mm -hmm. I love watching. I mean, Sally Ride, as an example, was a professional athlete. She was a great tennis player. But even she, I think, had to work on the physical aspect. I love 
watching the old training videos and seeing the women um, race up the stadium stairs alongside the men and sometimes winning and just seeing all the things that they had to do to get into that shape, as you say, as an astronaut requires. Let's talk about how you put the story together. You use a lot of oral history in the book uh, and the archives too. But what kind of challenges did you face? Because, you know, much of this uh, material must still be classified just simply because of its sensitivity. You know, NASA has a terrific library, and I was so fortunate to be able to access that. I talked to the NASA historian. I used the oral histories. And then probably the most important component was I got to talk to the astronauts themselves. And we had exclusive cooperation of the women astronauts. I actually interviewed all of them. So four of the living astronauts, uh, of course, Sally Ride um, passed away of pancreatic cancer in 2011, and Judy Resnick passed away in the Challenger. But four of the, of the first women are still living. I got to speak to all of them, as well as the African-American astronauts. And having that access and doing those interviews really gave me an understanding of what they went through almost more than anything. And it was great to get to know these people and hear their amazing stories. Yeah, there's a scene in the uh, TV drama, The Crown, where one of the principal characters meets Armstrong and Collins and, and is kind of very struck by how matter of fact they are about space and, and being an astronaut and so on. What, what did you find when you met these astronauts as they reflected on the experience that they had been through? Was it spiritual for them or was it something that was very pragmatic? Oh, I think it runs the gamut. I think it's hard for it not to be spiritual. Whether or not people wanted to share that was, I think, something that varied from person to person. Um, but everybody universally was incredibly moved by the experience of going to space. And I think they all had that feeling of, you know, the Earth is a single organism. There are no boundaries. We all need to work together. And all of them had that experience, I think, universally. And I think that for all of them, it was profound and life-changing and something that they returned to in their memories. And I think spiritually, they returned to it often and loved talking about it. I think when they talk about their missions, they all really lit up compared to almost anything else. <laughs> so I think it's, it's one of those, it's a, a definitely a highlight in there, a huge highlight in all of their lives without exception. Yeah, and we, and we can't move away from the danger either. We talked uh, about the Challenger disaster of January uh, 1986 before. It was the 25th space shuttle mission. I mean, it, it's painful to read it in the book. It must have been painful to write it, uh, particularly because, it, it, as you describe it, in many ways it was so simple what went wrong. The weather was just too cold. Yes, simple and complex, in, and simple in the sense that uh, it was too cold and the cold jeopardized the equipment, in particular the O-ring of the solid rocket booster. It was something that they could have predicted and many engineers did predict, you know, in the days before the shuttle launched. It was a human error, an error of bureaucracy, an error of um, the agency itself, a disaster rooted in history, as the Rogers Commission uh, reported later, and complex in the sense that at so many moments, things could have gone a different way. And writing that, I feel like I really understood the anatomy of this accident and how a series of small bad decisions led to it. 
Yeah, and at, in the description, I mean, at, at stages, you are actually taking us through literally second by second as these kind of various things happen and lead on to the the next thing. And it is heart wrenching to read. I mean, you have the family watching down below. There's the uh, the person who has to decide whether to shoot down the the kind of after the fireball to kind of shoot it down, stop it crashing to earth, hoping the orbiter uh, was nowhere near. And the, the dispatcher down on the ground, uh, wishing that he had said Godspeed to the, to the astronauts in those final moments when he knew that everything was going to go badly. Uh, I mean, it's it, kind of all round, it's just a, a heart-wrenching story, but also one, as you say, that raised questions at the time about NASA's competence and the very project itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great, that was a great summary of what that accident looked like and from all the different points of view. I think that it was so difficult uh, for NASA to, you know, to go through the Rogers Commission and for the Rogers Commission, which of course investigated the Challenger, um, to point out all of the flaws that led to the accident. And then of course, NASA over the next couple of years has to have a come to Jesus moment and reform not only the um, technology itself, not only the solid rocket boosters, which took several years and many thousands of hours of work, but also to reform the way it ran, the way the administration ran and forcing people to, you know, especially higher ups to listen to the engineers and people on the ground who really knew what was going on. We've been talking about the civilian shuttle. Was, was there a military space shuttle as well that we know much less about? Well, uh, it's a, that's a great question. Uh, you know, the military has always had a relationship with NASA, and um, that's no different in the space shuttle. When the space shuttle was being built, part of the reason that the program was passed in Congress and part of the reason it got the funding it did was that it promised to take up military payloads and to take up military astronauts on the shuttle. And so in the infancy of the shuttle program and the development of the program, it was always anticipated that it would be carrying these, these payloads. A lot of them um, were secret. And that program ran and was a very important part of the shuttle until 1986, of course, when the shuttle exploded in Challenger. The military rethought its use of the shuttle, thinking that, listen, we cannot rely on this uh, spacecraft, which is not as consistent as it needs to be. We're in the middle of the Cold War and we're going to have to return to our Titan rockets, which is basically unmanned launches of those military payloads. Um, the years after Challenger, the shuttle continued to fly military payloads because it had to. There was no other way to space for the military at that point. But once it got everything it promised to up into space, then the um, military shifted back to its unmanned system, which was the Titan rockets. So it's a very fraught history. It's a super interesting history. But that relationship, even now, I think is, it's, it's sort of a precursor to what we're looking at now um, with some of the militarization of space. And um, the relationship between those two agencies are just fascinating. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that if you'd written uh, this book 10 years ago, there, there might have been a sense that you, people were, if not exactly bored with space travel, it, it didn't seem to have its relevance uh, in the way that it had for earlier generations. That, that is definitely not the case today. I mean, for example, what do you think about the United States Space Force that was founded in 2019? How do you think that will eventually fit into the broader story that you've told in the book here? 
you know, studying the history of NASA and the Department of Defense and how they work together and how they don't work together and why is NASA a civilian agency as opposed to a military agency, which is also rooted in the history of the Cold War. And, um, you know, the truth is when we explore new places, there's always this battle between exploration, commerce, and also the military aspirations. And I think we're seeing that in our own time where there's this desire to explore and do science, but there's also this idea to like go out and make money and maybe mine asteroids or, or set up lunar vacations or, or whatever people have in mind, the commerce aspect to it. And then there's a the military aspect to it. And I think right now we're in a space race, uh, an emerging space race with China. And of course, America and China's relations have um, become more complex in recent years. So looking at that and seeing what are China's aspirations towards the moon? What are our aspirations towards the moon? Are we going to try to militarize it? Are there spy satellites? Who's funding those spy satellites? How are they getting up there? I mean, it's sort of an infinite question, um, but one that I think is absolutely fascinating. And I think we should think about it more than probably we do. Yeah, let's explore both elements of that. I mean, the, the military side first. As you say, the space race was a central part of the Cold War. And and not just in a military sense, but also in terms of imagination and a sense of national pride and, uh, and so on. Do you think that the space race with China will be part of that competition in that same kind of a way? I think it will. I think Americans are going to get really surprised at China's capacity and how it's growing. I think they're going to be surprised. I mean, of course, we're about to announce Artemis, the Artemis II crew. Uh, which will be uh, the first crewed mission of the Artemis uh, series, which is going to return us to the moon. And they'll do a slingshot around the moon, and that's going to create, and it, we're just days away from them announcing who that crew will be, and it's going to be very exciting. That said, you know, the Artemis program has been delayed. There are lots of um, slippages. When, when we return to the moon is still a big question, and that would be the Artemis three mission. I think as we are trying to get back to the moon, China is trying to get there to the moon for the first time for them. And they're doing it in a way, they're putting a lot of resources behind it. And I think it's going to be very surprising. I think they're they're targeting at this point 2030, but I think they're going to beat it. And um, I think that the space race with China is going to really catch America off guard. And we're going to be very surprised at how quickly they catch up. And you mentioned the commercial aspect as the other side. I mean, what about the private entrepreneurs who, who are involved in their own space race? And and NASA, too, its project with Boeing, the Starliner. What will commercial space travel look like and what implications will it have for us as consumers, do you think, ultimately? I mean, it's interesting because I'm both um, excited by commercial space flight and also terrified of commercial space flight at the same time. I am having these, I'm having two reactions, but I think commercial space flight will open up and already has opened up space to a lot of different kinds of people. And um, my concern, and I think that's all good. And I think a lot of it is tourist-driven, uh, experience-driven. Some of it is driven by resources, uh, the potential to mine and, and develop resources in space, I think is also something people have their eye on. I think what's dangerous is that we don't yet recognize how dangerous it is to get to space and how dangerous it is once you get there. And I'm imagining that there are going to be some accidents along the way. And I hope that doesn't end the, the drive that we're now seeing, but certainly we'll have to learn um, from those inevitable accidents that will happen. So the book is The New Guys, the historic class of astronauts that broke barriers and changed the face of space travel. 
It's written by my guest, Meredith Bagby, and published by William Morrow. Uh, But for now, Meredith, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks for having me. Those were all terrific questions. I really enjoyed it. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening.